My name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hey you, welcome to episode 96, yes, <laughs> 96 of Legally Clueless. I'm so excited that you are listening to this podcast. If you are new to the fam, please join us on our Insta page, which is at Legally Clueless Podcast. And if you're going to chit chat about the podcast on Twitter, use the hashtag Legally Clueless. Can I just say this past week, we got so much love on Twitter, got so many new people joining the tribe. It's just so wonderful to see how this podcast has grown. So I'm so excited about the story you're going to hear on this episode because I genuinely just stumbled on this story. <laughs> it was such a coincidence how I found it. So at a point last year, I was getting really bad migraines and I think it was because of all the time I was spending in front of my laptop. There's a point when I didn't know how to take a break. So I I decided to go for an eye test and the place I went to is a store in a mall near my place called Rosalind Riviera and I found this particular store. It really is an eye practice. Can I call it that? Well, yeah. <laughs> I've called it that. So I found it online, like I'd done a Google search and then the name of this particular practice stroke store really stood up to me. It's called the Urban Tortoise. I was just like, ah, looks so fun and funky and cool. So I went in for an eye test because I figured that I needed blue light blocking specs. So I go in, I already knew which specs and frames I was going to get, but then obviously just do an eye test because I don't know these things. <laughs> Maybe I need even more than that. So he did an eye test and throughout the eye test, the optometrist who actually is the owner of the store, we just started talking and I was like, hey, so why did you choose this career path? How did you get into it? She explained to me so much about the eye. By the time I was leaving, I knew I wanted to record her story. <laughs> so luckily I asked and she was like, sure, no problem. So I think a week later, I went back and we just recorded it in the store. So not only do I love the story because I genuinely just stumbled on it, but it's such an inspiring and insightful story. Listen to this. And there weren't a lot of Muslims as well. So I actually had questions like, oh, why do you wear your headscarf? I started experiencing a lot of racism. Some guy was like, go back to your, and like swearing, 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 a lot of swearing. Go back to where you came from. Like, you don't belong here. What are you doing here? But it was a risk, a huge risk. I mean, you signed a lease and all your savings is gone. In terms of starting a business, first of all, you need to register a business. When we did the brick wall, the first guy who did it, did it crooked. When my contraction started, I was like, oh, if I'm going to go into labor, I need to have paid all my suppliers. <laughs> so I was definitely getting contractions, but instead of them getting stronger and closer together, they were slowing down. Basically, from what I was told, she came out blue in color. The pediatrician was then he took her and he started pumping her. And like, you know, they're so tiny. I was trying to come to terms with, I've just done up a whole nursery in my house and I've bought everything. And there's a chance that I might not go home with this baby. So that's Arfa. She is the founder of the Urban Tortoise. Her story is coming on later in this episode. Other than that, I've had a very good week. I think I'm in one of those spaces where I'm at such peace. I don't know how I reached here. I wish, <laughs> I wish I knew, but I'm at such peace. I'm at such, I don't know, like there's a calmness inside me that either it's been a long time since I felt it, such that I've even forgotten. <laughs> 
that this feeling actually exists and you can have it or I've just never had it before. So I'm very thankful. A friend of mine sent me a New Year wishes and we were just talking and she's like, how are you doing? I was just like, oh my God, I'm at such peace. I know that life isn't a straight line and there will be dips and I'm at peace with that as well. So strange, but I'm very thankful for whatever this energy is. And if I find the source, I will bottle it up and share it with you. (laughs) So I'm also excited because this week on Tuesday, I'm going for my solo writing retreat. Ah, let me tell you. So getting back to writing, maybe that's why I'm feeling like this. But anyway, let me finish my thought. Getting back to writing poetry. Ooh. It feels so good. I get such a high while writing the the poem. And then when I finish the poem, ah, it's it's such a high. I can't, it's funny because poetry is all about words, but I can't put this feeling into words. So getting back to writing has been fantastic. And this week I finished a piece that's part of a project that's seeing various women sharing their stories through different art forms. Ah. I can't wait for it to come out because when it does, I'm pretty sure it's going to be pretty powerful. But the piece that I wrote instantly has become one of my favorites. Ah, so yeah, so I'm going on my writing retreat because I want to do a lot more with my poetry going forward. And I just need to disappear for like three, four days, do a lot of writing. There's a particular project that I want to do. So I'm, I just want to obsess over it for three to four days and then come back. (laughs) and keep flowing the side but I'm going to try and make these solo retreats a thing I do maybe every three to four months I had a conversation with another friend and she was saying before she got married and got kids that's something she used to do every January just disappear has I think was like a week and a half disappear do things that bring her joy reconnect with herself figure out what she wants to do for the year and then come back. So yeah, if by March, April, you do not hear me talking about a retreat, please remind me because sometimes I commit to doing something and then I talk myself out of it. I don't know. It's a strange thing that I do. So please just <laughs> shoot a comment and be like, hey, 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 sis. <laughs> it's March. Where are you going this time? But yeah, I am super excited about it because the cabin that I I'm going to is not so far that I need somebody to drive me. So I'm going to drive myself. But also there's like a river near it. And I really hope that it looks exactly like the pictures on Airbnb. I read all the reviews. There were like 70 something reviews. They were all really good. But you'll remember my situation in Ghana. And if you haven't, I think it's episode 25. Well, it's around the 20s where I went to Ghana for a conference. It was a Facebook conference and they put us up in Kempinski and I extended my stay. So after the conference, I think I was staying maybe two more days. And I was just like, ah, I don't have Kempinski money. Let me look for a place on booking.com. So the app I used then was booking.com. The first, well, it was one of the top three places that popped up was this little hotel And the pictures showed that it had an appreciation for like African history, especially in the arts. So there were like pictures on the walls of various West African musicians. It just looked like a place that I would belong. (sighs) When I arrived at that place first, those pictures on booking.com were just false. It looked nothing. (laughs) It looked nothing like the place. And the guy who had taken me was the Kempinski driver. He even told me, madam, I'm not leaving you here. (laughs) 
turns out I did have Kempinski money because we went back. <laughs> we went back and I just like checked back into Kempinski. I was just like, eh. Because you want to be out and about exploring, knowing that your place is safe. And then because I needed a place then and there, I didn't have the time to like go into Airbnb and do all of these things. I mean, I think I could have, but at that point, I just didn't want to get scammed again. I was scared. So I was like, let me just go back to what I know. So I hope this cabin I'm going to. <laughs> ah, I hope it looks exactly like the pictures, yo. <laughs> Because if it doesn't, this solo trip thing will come to a complete halt. I will not be doing it. So another thing that I wanted to share with you is something I stumbled on. <laughs> stumbling on a lot of things, Adele. Something I stumbled on this week. So I read a lot of articles that can help you connect with yourself better, either on a you're just chasing self-awareness level or mental health check-ins, especially after the year that we've had, it's good to kind of like just make sure you're okay, fully, inside and out. And I came across two things that I wanted to share because I just thought that were so interesting. One, I'm trying to actually do, which is dedicate a specific time for myself and like in, in the day using this specific time for self-reflection. And it could either be you're just kind of meditating over something or over nothing <laughs> or you're listening to your favorite songs or it's a time in the day where you do something that brings you joy. I'm using it for journaling and journaling skewed towards self-reflection. So just getting my thoughts out there, not anything about work because I realized I was using this downtime, like when I meant to be resting, I was using it to be thinking about work. Now I'm trying to be more intentional about, okay, work time is over. Let's reflect on you, yourself. How are you doing? What are you feeling in this moment? And so while I was reading this article, the second thing I wanted to share, which was a question. So they had a couple of mental wellness check-in questions. One that stood out to me, which was so wild, wild in a good way, is am I fighting life or am I inviting life? Like, just think about that for a second. So I don't know how you would interpret that. But for me, how I took it is the control freak in me tries to control everything. Even stuff that is beyond my control, stuff that life is in control of, I will worry and obsess about stuff that I can't really change. So I looked at it as that thing that I do is actually fighting life. And it's not inviting life. Like I'm fighting <laughs> fighting the flow that life is going. Like you understand? And it's a losing battle because that's something that is, is beyond my power, right? So when I came across that question, I was like, what? I have to share it with you. I was like, it's, I just found it so, so profound. Another thing that I'm loving is the song of the week. Uh, I really love Jamila Woods. I really do. I think I have like a soft spot for her because I read that she started off as a poet. So any musician who starts off as a poet, to me, I'm just like, yes. <laughs> Instant love and appreciation. But her music is so beautiful and so real. This particular song I was listening to sometime this past week when I was doing a night shift. So it was like 2 a.m. when I'd finished Actually, it was like quarter to 3 a.m. when I'd finished my work. So as I was putting away like my microphone and stuff like that, I was playing this particular song. Thinking that, see, I'm playing music, putting away my stuff to go to bed. 
And I listened to this song. Instantly, I had to sit down and start writing because it inspired me so much. The name of the song is Giovanni and it's by Jamila Woods. Oh my God, please listen to it. I feel like it's like an ode to black women. In fact, so I'll put a link to the video in the description of the episode. The video is like an extended version because it has various women talking about just how kick-ass they are. It's so awesome. So it's about eight minutes long, the video version. Ah, please listen to it. It's so beautiful. Anyway, let's jump into 100 African Stories. Super excited about this one. As I told you earlier in the episode, stumbled on the story, but she takes us through figuring out what career path to pursue, setting up her own business, dealing with racism, her relationship with failure and with success, And even opening up about a really stressful and complicated first time childbirth. A hundred African stories on Legally Clueless. Stories from Africa. So my name is Arifa Fazal. I have have lived my whole life in Nairobi. I was actually born in Canada, but that's basically because my parents were working there at the time. Both my parents are also from Mombasa. I've lived my whole life in Nairobi. I went to school here. I went to St. Austin's and then I went to Nairobi Academy. And then it was basically time for university. So I needed to figure out what I wanted to do. I really had no idea what I wanted to do. So I was kind of trying to figure out what I'm good at. And I really loved art. And I really loved like, you know, physics and mathematics to some degree. So I thought of being uh, an architect and that like really excited me. But when it was kind of time to apply, all the universities were asking for art portfolios. And I liked art, but I didn't really have like an art portfolio. So I kind of had to just let go of that. And then I thought of law. I was like, ooh, it sounds interesting, money, you know. <laughs> so I actually did an internship at one of the law firms over here and it was the most boring experience ever like literally I had to like highlight all documents to make them like updated to the next year and I was like no 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 this this cannot be my job so I quickly decided against that and then I was basically trying to think of something that's pretty hands-on but it's it's still a bit sciencey because I did like the sciences and I kind of thought of optometry, but I think I feel like that's because my dad was kind of telling me it's, it's a good career, you know. But I thought it's too, like, cliche. Like, there was a lot of people in my community doing it, and especially a lot of girls, because it's the kind of thing, oh, you can stop and start whenever you want, you know, if you want to stop and have a family. And I was like, you know, I'm not really thinking about that. I just want to do something fun. But I actually then thought of it practically and it did combine all the things that I loved so I thought I'd go for it but I wasn't like super super excited about it like it was kind of something I was just doing optometry combined physics a lot of biology which was like you know all like the health side of things as well like the health of the eye and then I guess to some degree, which is not, not optometry, optometry itself, but dispensing glasses combines then fashion, which I was also a little bit interested in. So I thought like thinking of it as a career and what you actually do at an optician's, I thought that it would be something that I would enjoy. I actually also did a short internship at an optometrist and I found, okay, this is actually more interesting than I thought. So I went with it. I decided to apply to different universities. Two of my top options were Aston, that's in Birmingham in the UK, and Cardiff. Now, my brother was already studying at Aston in Birmingham. So obviously, I decided to go to Cardiff because why? Why would I want to be in the same place? 
<laughs> no, I kind of just wanted to throw myself in the deep end a little bit. We have like a huge community in Aston, a lot of family, a lot of my parents' friends. So I just kind of wanted to find myself in a way, you know, just like be in a place where I really need to figure out who I am. And Cardiff was actually really great for that. There weren't a lot of people... There was hardly anyone from my community in Cardiff. There were a lot of Kenyans, which is good. And there weren't a lot of Muslims as well. So I actually had questions like, oh, why do you wear your headscarf? Which was really good for me as well, because it took me back to my basics. Like, why am I doing this? You know, I remember, first of all, I remember I, I went a bit late, like two or three days late, which is really bad because everyone's already made their groups and they actually don't want anyone else in their group anymore. And I was just like, oh my God, this is great. So I had to work a bit hard to kind of, get into a group that I thought would be great good but in terms of culture shock like I remember like the first the first week the first year really everyone's just chilling so like a lot of people would go out like clubbing and because I don't drink it wasn't really my scene so that was also another part that I had to now figure out how do I socialize while not doing things that I don't want to do but I remember seeing like peak winter like it's freezing and I remember seeing like girls in like the shortest clothes ever walking with guys who are wearing like three jackets like seriously and I was just like who exactly are you doing this for like you know you can see they're like they're literally shivering I'm just like it would not kill you to just put a jacket on really so I couldn't I, I couldn't get my head around that I just did not understand but there were a lot of really great things in Cardiff as well like a lot of the people were really really friendly and I guess the way optometry works is it's three years in university so I was in Cardiff for three years which was pretty good I wasn't really struggling with my grades in any way like it was pretty nice I mean the third year was a bit hard but you expect that and then with optometry you have like a fourth year which is called pre-registration and it's basically how it's basically a year where you do exams and you work at the same time so you're based in a practice and it's not really easy to get a practice of your choice like I would have probably decided to go Anywhere in Cardiff would have been fine, anywhere in Birmingham, anywhere in London, because I had a lot of family and friends. But when you're an international student, you, a student, you don't get priority. So they kind of give you all these random options of these small towns all across the UK and, and you just have to, to pick one of them. So I decided, okay, instead of picking like a random town that's really like dull, I decided to pick one that's right by the sea, which was, it was beautiful. It was in Devon. Um, it was a little town called Torquay, which was, it was really, really nice. Like I loved it. Like the place itself was like gorgeous. I basically had to, after I was done with, with my third year in Cardiff, moved to Torquay and got a flat for myself. And, you know, I tried to be as close to the practice as, as possible because then it would just be a few minutes in the morning to get to work. And overall, it was a learning experience for sure because now to kind of put things in perspective, I was five or six hours away from anyone I knew. So I was like pretty much, I could say all alone, like except for the people I was working with who I knew, which who didn't really know me before that. So I was pretty far from, from everyone which I was kind of okay with. But then slowly I started experiencing a lot of a lot of racism, not like loads of occasions, but when they would happen, they would really affect me because first I would tell myself, nah, like, no, why would they be racist? Like they're not being racist for sure. And then it was like, I mean, the things they would say, you'd be like, okay, fine, definitely they're being racist now. In, in Kenya, you, thankfully, I haven't ever really experienced racism because I'm, a Muslim or I'm wearing a scarf you know that's that's something I've just never felt here 
and maybe because like there's quite a few Muslims here so people understand just because you're wearing a scarf doesn't mean you're a terrorist or you know just those kind of things whereas the place I was in in the UK at that time in Turkey there wasn't a lot of there weren't any Muslims really like I was probably the only one so they were just probably like really shocked they probably related like thought of me as the people they see on the news or you know what I mean so so I was just trying to take it the best way possible but because I was all alone it was kind of it was it was kind of hard I just had to develop some thick skin and just move on but at the same time like you know like any situation you're put in God puts you in because you can he thinks you can handle it so at the same time the work scenario was just so lovely I made such nice friends and they were so good to me so I mean it could have been the other way it could have been my work situation was hostile and that would have been like the worst the two situations that I can vividly remember one was I was literally just going down for a stroll by the sea and I was just walking by the sea literally just doing my own thing I think I was even like facetiming with someone and some guy was like go back to your and like swearing 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 a lot of swearing like go back to where you came from like you don't belong here what are you doing here kind of thing which is kind of scary because you feel like are they gonna come and like do something to me and like do I just ignore them what do I do So it was kind of like, because that was my first, first time. And I literally only been in Turkey for like a day or two when that happened. So I was just like, oh my God, is this going to be my whole experience here? So I literally just shortened my walk and went back home and like tried to digest what had just happened. In the workplace, I, I remember a few, maybe two or three times where someone just doesn't want to see you because you're the optometrist and you're wearing a headscarf. So they're just like, uh, really, is there no one else who can see me? Like, does she have to see me? And then at that time, my supervisor, he was like the nicest person ever. He was like this Irish guy who was just, I swear, I don't know what I would have done without him. He was so nice. Like he could tell if I came into work and I wasn't feeling my best, like he would have like such a lovely chat with me. So like I said, there's always people to balance out, you know. Um, so he would be like, uh, no, she's fully qualified. And I mean, you have to see her. And by the end of the eye test, they would be like the loveliest people because they, they've actually had a chance to, they've, they've had a chance to like speak to you so in a way I I started taking it as an opportunity to allow people to see you can think something in your head because of what you've been exposed to like you might not be the nicest to someone just because of how they they look to you but I was taking it as an opportunity to change that you know to to change that opinion that all people who wear a headscarf or all Muslim people are bad people I wanted to to change that view so I think slowly it went from being hurt to now this is an opportunity to just you know educate people this one year that I was in Turkey was working from 9 a.m to 6 30 p.m and then studying in the evenings because I had assessments the whole year round and then like a final exam. So there's, I think, three main assessments and there's a supervisor who comes to your practice and assesses you. So I was doing pretty well in the early on assessments. And then as the workload got more and, you know, you just get a bit more lonely and a bit more like tired of, of being so far away from everyone, you know, I, I was just not in a the best place. So I ended up just failing one of my assessments that was going to get me to the final assessment then. So that was, it was a huge assessment for me and I, I needed to do well. Like I put so much pressure on myself. I think I started preparing for it like way in advance because I wanted to make sure that I was going to ace this thing. But because it's optometry is like both practical and theory. The theory, I was kind of okay, but I made like a a tiny error on the practical like you have like a, a patient in front of you and you have to kind of perform something and I missed out one thing 
and I failed because of that and I was devastated because before that, you know, being in high school and um, university, I hadn't really experienced failing at something. Like maybe there was times I didn't do that great, but never actual, you know, you've actually failed. So I, I, I ended up getting the news that I'd failed on my birthday, which was like, oh my God, seriously, like why? Because I'm one of those people like I love to celebrate my birthday and I want everybody to make a big deal and you know <laughs> and I actually received like really nice presents from my then fiance and I was just like really excited and then I got the news that I failed so just kind of like oh <laughs> but I think after that what I struggled with was telling myself that you know just because just because I failed assessment did not make me a failure that was a huge learning point for me because before that I didn't actually have to deal with failure in the sense of grades so so I found that really helped me become like who I am today because when things don't go completely right you can kind of separate the act from yourself you know you can just be like that was just something that went wrong it's not like I'm completely wrong so if you fail the assessment then you need to redo it and redoing it meant staying in Tokyo longer <laughs> and I basically just wanted to like I loved the place it was really pretty and stuff but at some point you just need your support system to be closer and you just miss family and as winter comes you just want sunshine so I just wanted to get out and I was actually planning my wedding at that time it was gonna have so, so it was all on a timeline so and you know when those timelines don't work you just freak out because no I'm, I'm supposed to pass and I'm supposed to do the next thing and I'm supposed to get out of here and I'm supposed to get, go home and get married that was the plan so failing that one assessment made like a chain kind of get prolonged which which made it such a like the biggest deal in my head at that time you know but like you know all these things they they really really do happen for a reason because when I look back that one year made me grow more than I've ever grown in a year what actually ended up happening is because my timelines were getting affected so much, I decided that I'm not going to be... I had be, I had one more assessment and then the final assessment to qualify completely. So I was basically halfway. And because timelines had moved so much and I was just dying to go home and dying to start preparing for the wedding, which now already had a date and the invites had gone out and all of that, I decided instead of forcing things to happen, I'm going to go have a word with the director of the store and see if I can figure out a way to put it on hold, which I had to come to terms with because in my mind, I'm doing all these assessments, I'm passing, I'm going to celebrate being a fully qualified optometrist, then I'm going to go home and then I'm going to get married. So my honeymoon is going to be great because I don't have anything to think about. But that's not how it worked out. <laughs> you know, sometimes our plans, of course, they don't work out. <laughs> so what actually happened was I decided that I need to be okay with getting married and not being a fully qualified optometrist at the time. So what I ended up doing was having a chat with the director who was actually really understanding. Like they knew, they knew where I was in life and what was happening and all my family was back home and all of that so they were really understanding and said you know what it's fine take a break go home figure out your stuff when you're ready I, I basically had one assessment to do in store and then the other one just happens you don't have to be at the store anymore it's just like an, a, a day assessment at any of the centers around the UK so for that I didn't have to physically be in Turkey so I just had one more assessment to be in Turkey and then I could leave so the plan was go home get married when, and then when you're back and you're ready you can do the last assessment 
and then you can you know do the final thing before you qualify and that's basically what happened because <laughs> when I came back I was in a better headspace like you know I'd taken a break I'd seen my family I'd gotten married and I had to really really train myself when I got home to just not think about it anymore because you know like you getting to your career and qualifying is such a huge part of your life for me it defined success at that point so I had to really try to actively not think about it and be okay with where I was because I was then thinking about how much I'd failed all that time you know what I mean so I had to be okay with the fact like look it's good you're gonna do this 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 is this and then you're gonna go back and you're gonna have time to study and it's all gonna be fine like the world is not ending that I had to tell myself that because I really wanted to enjoy my wedding I mean that doesn't happen often hopefully <laughs> You know, so I really wanted to make sure I, I had a, a good time and I wasn't thinking about it, which thankfully I was able to do. The plan was to live in the UK. That was The plan was to qualify, move to London because my husband was working in London. Stay there. Like, I mean, you know, people think if you if you can be in the UK and get a job there, why would you come back home? They feel like there's more opportunity there. So in my mind, that's how I was thinking at that point in my life. Like, I always knew that I love being in Kenya, but I didn't know how far my career can progress in Kenya. So as far as my thinking was at that time, I was going to just be in the UK. So basically what ended up happening was I got married, we got married. <laughs> it's always about me. <laughs> so we got married, went on a honeymoon, which was really nice. It was Musambweni. Yeah, which is so nice. It was really nice. And then we, moved, we went back to London. I had to leave now my like newly we're newly married I had to leave him for a couple of weeks to go to Turkey to be there work there finish my assessment thankfully I passed this time and then went back to London to do my final assessment and then I, I remember jumping on the bed when I kept you know how you keep refreshing the page to figure out if the results have been posted so when I found out that I had past I, I, I was checking from 4 a.m but they told us the results are going to come up at like 9 a.m but they came they were up by 7 a.m so maybe it wasn't so bad that I was checking it often so at 7 a.m I'm like squeaking and so excited and jumping on the bed and I was like oh my god I finally finally qualified so finally qualified I managed to get a job in London then so my husband was working I was working the plan was to be in London literally only like three or four months of us being in London, settled and working, he comes from work one day and he's like, oh, you know, by the way, I got a job offer in Nairobi. And I was like, oh, cool. I was like, isn't that weird? Like, why would you get a job offer if you didn't apply? <laughs> and then he's like, no, no, I, I applied, but I just applied like that, you know. So for me, I didn't really know how to take that. And he was like, oh, so that mean, what are we moving? What's happening? I mean, he didn't know either. It was just like a random, like he just decided to apply and see, see what would happen. So we ended up making this whole like whiteboard pros and cons list of, you know, moving back home. I mean, our, our parents are home. You know, our siblings are still all in the UK. So we're just trying to like balance. And really, I think the reason we decided to eventually like to move back at that point was because we just saw the opportunity I mean the sunshine is like for me that was the reason really <laughs> I was just like I cannot live being cold half the year the main the main thing was you know just being able to go out there and look for opportunities we wanted to be the kind of people who are creating our own life the way we want it to be you know the way things happen just usually you find employment, you stay in employment and okay, you're making a good salary and it's just 
normal stuff like you're just doing the same thing and eventually you're not doing anything that you're super passionate about so we we really wanted to go out there and create meaningful experiences for ourselves so that was one of the factors where even when i when i thought of the life in the uk i just didn't see that happening for me like me being able to have a practice now in nairobi would have never happened if we had stayed in the uk there's just too many barriers then when we decided now we're moving back we we were in between i mean i didn't have a job plan like set up in nairobi but he did and we had like three or four months in between like not having a job so we decided okay let's go traveling so we decided to to go to this village in mexico it was it was so beautiful but where I ended up doing an eye camp, which was so, 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 so amazing because some of the people I saw there in the eye camp had never had their eyes checked at all. And basically, I don't know if you know this, but anyone after the age of 45, even if they've never worn glasses, will start to need reading glasses. That's just the way our eyes are. We start to require magnification for close-up things. So there's this lady, that, and that's at 45, right? There's this lady who I saw who was 70 years old who just did not know why she could not see close up. So we'd taken glasses and everything to give to people over there. And when I checked her eyes and realized it's just like, it's just a reading issue, gave her the reading glasses. She put them on and she actually started sobbing. I was trying to speak Spanish. I wasn't doing a great job. So there was a translator. So he was like, she's sobbing because she's saying that she didn't realize how aged her fingers have become because she couldn't see her fingers like clearly. And I was just like, oh my goodness. And then I think, you know, these things, things these moments that happen they just make you feel like what you're doing is actually helping somebody and i think that just gives you all the satisfaction to keep going you know and then we went back to london packed up everything and came to nairobi so we moved back to nairobi like a week before uh, my husband needed to start his job and we were at my parents place because we hadn't found a place yet and so it kind of felt like i was on holiday because that's how when like you know we would come back to Kenya we'd be at home you know breakfast in the garden chilling the sun is shining this is the life like why were we even in the UK to start with you know really I I think I enjoyed myself like it was a holiday for like two weeks then after two weeks I was like okay what am I doing with my life so oh yeah I was like oh this is long term now you know I'm here what am I doing like so I was looking for opportunities and, and it just slowly eventually I think it took me like a whole month and a half to find a job I ended up finding a job as an optometrist and I started working for someone. I found I actually really enjoyed helping people pick eyewear because you get to know a bit more about them. Like, you know, you're not just going to pick anything. You're going to figure out what their personality is like, what their style is like. So you're able to build better connections. I was really enjoying my experience working in Nairobi. After maybe, I'll say, about nine months almost a year I started to I was still enjoying the whole day-to-day but there were so many things I wanted to do better and there were so many things I thought I could add value to in terms of you know making the whole experience like more fun more engaging you know there's just in terms of like marketing there was so much so many ideas I had and being in the UK, there's so many boutique opticians, like um, really, really nice eyewear stores that are just done so artistically. And you walk in and you feel like such a nice vibe. And, you know, you know, those normal opticians, how they have those stands of glasses and then they have a key at the bottom. 
as if to say anyone who's gonna walk in is gonna like want to steal everything and first of all they look so bad like they look horrible they make even beautiful eyewear just look so ugly so there were all these ideas that were creeping in and I didn't really know if I actually wanted to have like is that what I wanted did I want to have my own practice but I think as I thought about it more and more the ideas were so different from the normal kind of setup that I just started getting more interested so then it was like I was, I was looking for a space for a really long time because it, it, it's hard to find a space that that you you know will work completely in terms of how it looks but also will will people will there be footfall here things like that so I was looking for quite some time I was actually getting so desperate I was like I'm just gonna build a random shop on a random road and I'm just gonna open it like I, at, at some point I, I wanted it so badly like I remember going to work and all I was thinking about is oh maybe try this location this location you know like always looking at to let spaces online and I, I'd actually become obsessed but that's when you know you want to do something right eventually found um, Roslyn Riviera and I came to have a look at it and although I was I, I knew it probably isn't gonna get like filled up I was now looking at it from a personal thing I was like I, I think I can make this work but it was a risk a huge risk I mean you signed a lease and you know like all your savings is gone and it was it was definitely very scary but very exciting as well and I think I'm very fortunate to have that support system that tells me you know you can do it like go for it in terms of starting a business there's so much like documentation that you need you need to have like first of all you need to register a business then you need to get various certificates depending on profession and the services that you're offering so I mean there's a lot of people in Kenya who can be very helpful at that like you know you someone always has a guy who can do stuff so I was mainly for the most part of it enjoying it stressful but enjoying it like doing the fit out for example of the shop like I wanted to have a brick wall like a a white brick wall and my dad so my dad does like construction and stuff and he's like oh just you know there's those wallpapers that look like brick I'm like oh my god do not do not go there that that is not gonna happen so we were clashing on those so he was trying to help me with the fit out yeah to like do things here and there so that the cost would come down and I mean he was really proud of me to like for like getting a shop and all of that but he wanted to do like a false ceiling with like pretty you know the mardadi stuff and I'm like oh my god we're really not aligning on how this place is gonna look huh but at, at some point he was just like look whatever you want to do I'll try and make it work so when he saw like the finished ceiling he's like I don't think this is finished <laughs> and I was like no it's an industrial look and he's like uh-huh okay <laughs> like so <laughs> so all these things which was really like it was also nice for our relationship to be doing things together as well like yeah so I was saying when we did the brick wall the first guy who did it did it crooked like completely crooked the whole thing was crooked like it was not straight in any way or shape or form and it's just yeah so he had to like break the whole thing down and do it again you know and like even like the sunglass box for example I'd seen it on like Pinterest and stuff like that and I really wanted to do it but I had to sit with a guy and figure out like I mean he's not made a sunglass box before how do you how do you do it so there was all these things and then one of the other things we did was so the test room has to be a certain measurement that's how when someone reads the letters you can get the correct prescription 
So that was super important. So I was very specific. It has to be this measurement. Do not mess it up. And then on a Sunday, I decided with my husband, let's just go and see how the fit out's going. You know, let's have a look. So they basically divided the back of the shop to be half like a really tiny storage kitchen space and then the other three quarters of it to be the test room. Now, the way they had built the wall, they had built it on the extra side on the test room so that made the measurement shorter so i'm measuring i'm like oh my god this is not right so they had to then take down that wall again and and, and like already taken out the whole brick wall thing i had to take that down to make sure it's a proper measurement so yeah these things happen and at that time you feel like you're gonna pull your hair out and like freak out but then when you look back it's a funny story the optical shop is called the urban tortoise right when i wanted to open a store i think i wanted to call it urban eyewear and at that time my husband was a pro- in a, on a project in rwanda so i was sending him like all the ideas and for urban eyewear he responded saying oh my god i've never heard anything so boring and i was just like okay then come up with something you know like as in that that's great feedback but uh <laughs> what do you think it should be called and i was also at the same time picking out eyewear for the shop and at that time I was picking out a lot of, um, in the eyewear industry, what we call tortoise shell. So it's, you know, those brown specks, uh, specks with black mixed together and you can have lighter shades and darker shades. I was loving that. So I was picking a lot of that. And then I was like, ooh, tortoise. So then we thought the urban tortoise. And it kind of started coming together because urban, we thought of, you know, the city and, you know, that sort of like rush. Um, And the tortoise was... It was really going with what we wanted for the shop. We wanted it to be a space where people can just slow down and take their time to pick eyewear. Because one thing that I knew I wanted, I didn't want the customer to feel rushed in any way. Because I've worn glasses my whole life and it's taken me, it takes forever for me to find a pair of glasses that can work with the scarf. There's so many factors, right? So I'm so specific about picking a pair of glasses I understand how people feel about it like it's on your face all the time especially if you really need prescription you're going to be wearing them all the time you can't afford to change them so often maybe every year so you want something that's going to work so it's not as easy as just picking groceries right you need to take your time you need to feel confident about it Um, you know you need to feel like there's value in what you're picking it's suiting you all of that so we really wanted people to feel comfortable coming with their friends coming with their family and picking glasses that's why we have like the bar stools just to give that you know like it gives you that impression that you are happy, like be here, be comfortable, like relax, that sort of thing. So with the Urban Tortoise, what we really wanted to bring together was high quality eye care. So we do everything with all like all the machinery we have to make sure that your eyes are healthy, you're seeing well and have like a really nice hand curated collection where you're not trying to sieve through ugly stuff to find a nice pair of glasses you know like as in literally everything in the shop i've picked myself so just trying to make sure that what you are going through you're, you're now you're, you're loving all of them and you have to pick what's best that that's kind of what we wanted to do with time i figured out i mean my passion is not doing the eye test or do, picking out the glasses i mean of course those do bring me joy but it's those connections that i get to build with people because when they come into the shop like you know how when you had your eye test i mean we chatted for like for like 10 minutes before even we did anything and and those are the things that just make me so happy like i mean imagine a job where you just get to chat to people i mean that's your job (laughs) that's great 
but you know what I'm saying? Like, as in just having that is just so, so, so phenomenal. And I feel like it allows me to really genuinely connect with people. Okay, so the shop started in August 2017. And when it started, it was literally just me and one other person to help me. So like a, a shop assistant, an optical assistant, that sort of thing. And I was the one testing all the time. Because I wanted to give it the best shot, we were open seven days a week, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m., you know? So it was intense. It was full-time work. And I worked like that with no day off for a couple of months, like two or three months, until I started feeling really burnt out, obviously. like, I, And I didn't even know I was feeling burnt out. I was like, oh, everything's fine. Like, everyone would be like, like my friends and my family and my husband would be like, you really need to take a day off. And I would be like, nah, I'm good. I'm good. Really, I'm good. Like, you guys don't get it. I'm good. And then I started feeling like really ill. I would have like headaches all the time. Like I actually vividly remember like at the shop having to like steam and stuff like that. Just not feeling well. And I'm like, oh, why am I not feeling well? Like you're like the most, like to everyone else in my family and my friends, they were like, that's the most, we know the answer. We've been telling you this for like two or three months, but you just do not want to listen to us. So then I started still having the shop open all the time, but decided Mondays was a day where there'll be no optician. So there'll be no test happening on Mondays because at that point I, I definitely could not afford another optician like it's pricey and it was just not making sense so I decided okay Monday is going to be the day because people are more likely to come in on a Sunday it's easier to you know not have eye tests on a Monday so that's what the plan was for for a while actually worked like I mean I was I was the only optician for for a really long time and then maybe a year and a half in um, me and my husband started thinking okay maybe it's it's now time like I got I got engaged to him when I was 20 and I'm 28 now so it's been a while <laughs> so he was like so so yeah it was uh, well, I mean it was one of you know those people who ask you ask you those questions all the time but we were just putting them off for the like for the longest time and like we like I knew if I didn't start the urban like if I had a child before I started the urban tour toys it would have never happened so I really wanted to look after what I wanted as a passion before I start you know doing things where I don't have time for myself so it was very very planned in that sense like I like I remember my sister was getting married and I was like I'm not gonna look fat in those photos so I'm not gonna be pregnant during like you know it was very planned like when when we're gonna try and, and have a child and, and thankfully everything worked out according to plan so bef while I was pregnant I was looking for like another optician to help me which which worked out like one of one of the people I've known for quite a while was didn't have a job at that time and I, I quickly approached her because I was like I need you like I want you like I was so specific like even before I started the urban tutors I approached her to go in as a partnership but at that time she wasn't in the in the right place for it so she came on board which I mean changed everything for me because then I went from working all the time to being able to have a couple days off and you know working half the time and I was really able to enjoy the last few months of my pregnancy and and then of course going into motherhood <laughs> which is a whole other thing <laughs> so I remember feeling like contractions at home and it was maybe a day or two before my due date so um, I expected like it to happen and I was already feeling a few like contractions here and there a couple of days before but then they started getting a bit more intense and I was like ooh, like I didn't really know what it's supposed to feel like I was like it kind of feels like my period cramps so I was like okay are these contractions I was asking my husband and he's like uh yeah because I'm gonna be able to answer that so we were both a bit like is this what I'm supposed to be feeling 
So I actually remember that when my contraction started, I was like, oh, if I'm going to go into labor, I need to have paid all my suppliers. <laughs> like I was not thinking about the shop. I remember sitting on those, you know, those birthing balls or yoga balls, the stuff they tell you to sit on because it's going to help. So I actually have a photo of sitting on one of those balls with my checkbook, writing out like 10 checks for like whoever I need to pay, like, you know, anything that needed to be done for the next like month or two and like sending them with a rider to the shop. So like the suppliers can come and collect their checks and stuff. So the contractions like kept coming. And I remember us watching like Netflix. We were just chilling in bed that day. Like we were both on leave from work and just really just chilling. His mom was around and my mom had come to see me like from her place when when I told her that I, I'm feeling like I have a few contractions. So she's like, go to the hospital. I'm like, no, 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 no. They said they have to be this far apart. I really don't want to go early because it's just going to be boring if I go early. Like I'd rather go when I'm feeling like I need to. So this was in the morning hours like I felt I started feeling them from like 6 a.m and, and it went on the whole morning we were watching stuff and just chilling until like 11 12 and the contractions kept coming and then we kept telling both our moms like we're going like we're going relax we're going and they were like you guys like the baby is gonna come at home and I was like no 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 I'm not feeling like those con- the con- you know how you time them and I'm not feeling them that's like close and stuff so it's gonna be fine and they kept like literally every hour calling and telling us and I think we ended up going to the hospital I don't know what we went to the hospital we we ended up going to the hospital like four or something and then we were stuck in traffic (laughs) because I mean (laughs) we decided to go out at like traffic time and, and rush hour but we got to the hospital and then as soon as I got to the hospital, I was feeling them more. But you know how you have to go and get your room and then go to accounts before they even like take you to a room. So by the time we got to a room and stuff, it was like six or something. The nurse checked and she's like, I mean, you're dilated, but there's still time. Like, so relax, like have dinner, all of that. So we just got comfy. I mean, we were chilling. We we're like, oh, food. And like, you know, it's like, it was actually like we're in a hotel. But we weren't. <laughs> uh, so we like, you know, we were at Aga Khan and they give you like this menu to pick what you want to eat and stuff. So we we're like, oh, this, this is interesting. <laughs> I guess that says I'm not a great cook, huh? <laughs> but yeah, so we were like just, you know, chilling and I was, I was just sitting on the, the that bouncy ball thing and stuff. The nurse who checked me was really not nice. Like she was really, really not nice. But then the one who came on, like I think it's because her shift was ending and she just wanted to go home. But then the one who came after that was really lovely like Martha she was amazing like I loved her she was so good like they called the doctor and I was finally fully dead like the last few maybe like the last half an hour or hour until I got like fully dilated were actually like pretty painful like you get like these this like really strong contraction that's like so painful you can't do anything and then it's fine for a couple seconds so you're just like ah and then it's fine you know like so so it's kind of like that for a bit and and when you go into that contraction you kind of feel like you're hallucinating a bit so you can't really remember what happened during the contraction and then you remember a bit it's kind of like bitsy um so towards the end it it was getting to like midnight one to around one two a.m we started getting more and more and more and then like my my parents were already there so my parents were there and his his mom was there they finally called the doctor i think around three-ish just to kind of give you a backstory everything throughout my pregnancy was thankfully fine like everything was going fine there were no major issues i wasn't even that dis- i wasn't that uncomfortable like i was pretty okay i guess everything kind of turned around a bit during labor so as like now the proper like the the pushing side of labor started the way it's supposed to happen is you get contractions and they get stronger and closer together and the contractions is what helps the baby come out because you push during a contraction and then the baby starts to come out so that's the way it's supposed to work so I was 
definitely getting contractions. But instead of them getting stronger and closer together, they were slowing down, like space-wise. And my doctor told me it's called way, 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 way after. He told me it's called a hypotonic uterus. There's no way to tell that you have a hypotonic uterus until it's time, <laughs> which is great, right? What basically happened is um, my daughter was ready to, like there was time for her to come out. She was ready to come out. But because the contractions weren't happening, it was it was taking way too long. And when now the baby is in the canal, I think they're obviously their breathing is, is, is being compromised. So they tried everything. Like I remember two nurses putting all their weight on my stomach, trying to like push her out so I was just like this is ridiculous and they're telling me to push and I'm pushing and I'm just like I am pushing why are you telling me to push like I didn't get it like as in I am doing what you're telling me to do like am I not doing it right like I don't get it <laughs> you know it was, it was one of those finally they used a little bit of a vacuum and they and she came out but I couldn't actually see her coming out because there's so many stuff in between you but my husband was standing right next to me and he looked at her and I just looked at his face and I knew something wasn't right. So I had obviously never given birth before. It's my first child. I didn't really know, like, is this supposed to, ha- like, is it supposed to take a while for the doctor to tell you everything's okay? Like, how does this work? So I kept asking my husband, I'm like, Riza, is she okay? Is she okay? Like, is she okay? Like, I literally, he didn't know either, really. Like, you know, I'm asking him this question. He doesn't really know. But basically, from what I was told, she came out blue in color. So she was not breathing when she came out. Like, you know how you expect, according to movies, you expect the baby to cry, but she didn't cry. So then this scene is the scene I don't think I will ever, ever, ever forget. But they took her. So now the pediatrician was there, who was really good. The pediatrician was there and he took her and he started pumping her. And like, you know, they're so tiny. And he started pumping her so that like oxygen would go through. And it was like right beside me over there. So that scene... I will never, ever forget. Like, I I actually did not feel like it was real life. Like, at that point, I was like, no, no, I'm going to wake up from this right now. Like, this is not happening. Like, I think sometimes you just get through things because you believe that they're not happening or something. Because I was like, no, this is not happening. Like, that didn't just happen. Like, you know? So, obviously, when I saw him pumping her, like okay something I'm trying to process something is wrong like you know she's she's not okay and then there's like this card they bring and they put her in and they rush her to ICU so now because I've seen so many things about people's babies going missing and getting lost I told my husband you know I'm fine just run after her and don't leave her do not leave her like I was just like just be with her so he rushed with them to ICU and I think that was really hard for him as well because I mean they put so many wires and and so much like oxygen and medication and like I mean everything when you're not breathing nothing's working right so I didn't know how she was doing and then I guess the way it was at Aga Khan is in the waiting area so my like my parents and my husband's mom was sitting on a bench over there and this baby who obviously you know is like like you know is your grandchild is just being rushed across to ICU so for them it was also pretty hard so then the doctor like stitches me up and he goes home then the nurse is like i need to take you to your room and i'm like okay but i'm i started to get into like a lot of pain and i think the nurse was just a bit like how i mean you've just given birth like how you're not in pain like you can't be in pain like isn't you you've gone through the hard part you should be fine so she was like oh you know it must just be the stitches like healing they'll be fine like as in you know because it just happened you'll be fine so she's telling me sit on the wheelchair so i can take you to your room i'm like i was actually now getting to a point of pain that was so painful i didn't know what was happening so when she's telling me to sit on the wheelchair like it was not i was not it was so painful i was not able to even fathom how i would sit on a wheelchair like I knew I couldn't do that. So I told her, look, if you really need to get me to the room, the only way it can happen is if I walk. She's like, 
you're really joking right now. She's like, do you know how much blood you've lost? You cannot walk. So I was like, I can't sit on the wheelchair. She's like, you know, I'll get in trouble if I let you walk because something might happen to you. So I was like, don't worry, you support me one side, someone else will support me. Let's just get to the room. Basically, I ended up then in my room and I was in just so much, so much, so much, so much pain. I called the nurse, this Martha, who was with me from the start. I told her, listen, I am in so much pain. You know my pain threshold because you've been with me through the whole night. Do you think I would be complaining this much if it was bearable? She's like, no. So she then had a look at me and basically something looked completely off. I, there, was, there was like a lot of bleeding happening from a different side to where the stitches were. So something was wrong for sure. So she called the head nurse who had a look and was just like perplexed. Like she didn't, she had, she just knew it was not good. She didn't know what it was. She called the doctor. She's like, I don't know what's up, but I think you need to come back. Now the guy has just gone home. <laughs> So I think he, tra- he was trying to come back, but he was also stuck in traffic because it was now morning time. You know, like people are going to work at that time. It was like, I think it must have been like seven. So he's just telling her, book a theater and take her straight to theater just for, you know, we don't know what it is. That's and, and make our husband sign, <laughs> basically, because we don't know what it is. Like my husband just comes back to the room from the ICU and then he's he's there and they're like, we need to take her to theater now. What? <laughs> So he came with me and they rushed me all the way. I think it was across like another another building. So they rushed me and like, you know, you're just in the, like, you don't really know what's happening. You're in a lift and like you're in a stretcher and you're just like looking around and not really sure what's happening. I'm just like, I don't care. Like, do they need to put me on full anesthesia? I want full anesthesia. I want to knock out. Like I am in so much pain. Really, I don't actually care with what you do with me at this point. Just get me out of this pain. So they were discussing like, with the anesthetist, whether it should be local anesthesia or full anesthesia, I'm like, uh, 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 full, just knock me out. Like, as in, but then I, ha- I think the, there's something about if you eat something, then there's a risk. And after I gave, but someone gave me like a small date because I, I needed like energy. So they were just debating whether they should do it or not. But thankfully, they do full anesthesia. So when my husband's talking to the anesthetist and they're like full anesthesia, I'm like, and I'm looking at his face and he doesn't look happy. <laughs> So I so said, my mind, I'm like, what's up? It's fine. Like, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. Like, I think I was just so happy that I'm getting out of this pain that I, I couldn't even understand what he was going through, you know. But anyways, I went to theater and it was some sort of um, blood clot but outside the body, which is not a very common thing. And I was on the opposite side of the stitches, which is also weird. But anyways, my doctor was good. He hadn't seen it. He hadn't seen anything like that in 10 years. As, like, as in it was like strange to him as well. But he managed to sort it out. And, and then I finally came out of, of theater. And I was, at, uh, they, I was on the verge of needing like external blood because I'd lost so much iron. But thankfully, they could pump me with so much iron that I was okay. So I basically didn't see my daughter for about a day at least a day so she was in in ICU and then my husband was there and people could go see her but like just like really 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 close family so with my daughter it was one of those that the doctors didn't know how it would go so they would just tell you to take it a day at a time not any expectations so in our mind me and my husband had were trying to we're hoping for the best but we were also trying to understand that whatever happens is because of the way God wants things to happen. So I was trying to come to terms with, I've just done up a whole nursery in my house and I've bought everything. And there's a chance that I might not go home with this baby. It was the kind where every single day we would get, like, so she was in the hospital for 11 days total. Every single day we would get a tiny bit of good news. Like in just terms of percentage, like her percentage of heart medication was 5% and now it's 2.5%. You know, that kind of thing. I, in my mind, I can hear, like if I, but when I just, got home I could hear the hospital machines because in the ICU there's like 
if anything drops, the machine start beeping. And I used to get really freaked out by the beeping. I'm like, why the nurse is not doing anything? But I guess there's, they know the machines. And I was just like, they're not caring for her. But it wasn't really like that. It was just like, the machines are there to alert you. But if it goes on for a certain amount, then it's, then it's like something you need to be worried about. So there were all these things like I'd never experienced before, like having, having a baby in, in ICU. And, I, and now I can relate to when moms have their babies there, you know, like how, like it's like learning to breastfeed with your baby full of wires is like a whole other thing you know it's already hard to breastfeed first of all and then learning to do it when she's in that state was it was all a learning curve but I'm really thankful for the experience because now I don't I don't take her for granted at all like I know you know sometimes kids can drive you crazy like she's almost two and she's just crazy like crazy like there's no danger like what do you mean I can I can jump from these stairs I can jump from the bed like I'll be fine no no you'll not be fine so you know there's these there's these moments that sometimes you just you get tired because I mean they're so energetic and <laughs> you just be like where did all my energy go but I stop and I think there's a very high chance she would not be here today and that just puts everything back into perspective and even sometimes when like work gets a bit crazy and you feel like no I have to reply this email right now for work and I, I, I need to do this I need to do this and then you stop and think no I don't need to do this I need to be with her right now prioritizing and and i think sometimes i ask myself the question at the end of at the end of your life what will matter like what will you regret will you regret not working more i don't think so you will regret not having spent that quality time with the people you love catch more african stories in the next episode of legally clueless i really loved that story i loved how i stumbled on it i loved how you know your life journey On the outside looking in, people will label you under one of those stories. Does that make sense? So like for me on the outside looking in, people will be like, oh, she was a radio presenter. Now she's a podcaster and then leave out (laughs) so much of my story. You know what I mean? So on the outside looking in, you might look at Arfa or even the shop that I've been taught and not know that there's such a huge story behind it. You know what I mean? So I really loved discovering that in this story. And I hope you found something that you related with in the story. So I'm back to recording audience stories. I had taken a break Christmas week and New Year's week. So this coming week, I start again. So if you would love to share your story on this podcast, just record a one minute story demo telling me a bit about the story you want to share and then send that to the Legally Clueless hotline, which is in the description of this episode. But let me give it to you as well. Still haven't memorized it. Uh, so here I am trying to pull it up on my phone. <laughs> Plus 254-768-628-790. So send your story demo via WhatsApp to that hotline number. In case you hear a story and you relate with it and you want to share that you relate with it because this space is for you and me, you can record an audio note about that and send that to the hotline as well. Hi Adele, just listened to Nadia's story and uh, I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm carrying so much home, you know, her story reminded me of what happened to me in 2019. I was leaving Mombasa for a wedding and so when I was coming back in the bus, I get a call from my, my mother and you know, she tells me, Oliver, I'll be flying to Nairobi tomorrow because apparently the doctors in in in, in this area the t- doctors in Bungoma had diagnosed her with a brain tumor Adele I have never cried like that in a bus and 
somehow I find it weird, you know, when you cry and people are looking at you and people can't just relate to what is happening to you. So when I was listening to Nadia, you know, it took me back to that day. And I like it when she finishes and says, you know, we are all human and um, it's okay, you know, not to be okay. It's okay to go through pain. It's okay to go to be depressed. It's it's just okay, you know. I like it, you know, such a nice way to start my day. Thank you. Oh, my word, Oliver. Thank you so much for sending that audio note. It's so weird how we <laughs> we really have very similar human journeys, like different, but very similar as well. So when you hear the stories on this podcast, even for me, when I hear the stories, I'm just like, oh, I thought I was alone. <laughs> I thought I was alone battling with this. So it's always so magical to get audio notes of you identifying and relating with some of the stories that you hear on the podcast. So I'm very thankful when you send those through. If you are new to this podcast, remember new episodes go out every single Monday without a fail. We are also counting down to the 100th episode. So hopefully either in the next episode or by episode 98, I will tell you how we'll be ushering in. the 100th episode that's the thing that's giving me stress currently so send me all the good vibes and just cross your fingers for me light a candle for me burn some frankincense for me that the plans that i have for that 100th episode actually come to be and then finally remember that this podcast plays on trace radio if you're in kenya just go to traceradio.co.ke i've put that link in the description of this episode and you can be able to stream trace legally clueless is on there every monday wednesday and friday at 9 a.m and at 8 p.m for those of you who are not in kenya you can find the podcast on trace play as well so that's pretty dope that's it for this episode of legally clueless you can share this podcast with your friends you can keep it for yourself i'm not judging Just make sure you're here next week for the next episode.